0: Los Angeles, you're now tuned into Slauson Girl Speaks with award-winning journalists and South Central natives. Slauson Girl. This is a safe space. Yeah. Celebrating authentic Black expression, where Slauson Girl dives deep into Los Angeles history, politics, and news, while discussing culture, race, and identity with carefully curated guests to keep you open-minded in today's society. No cap. Follow Sloss and Girl on all social media platforms. And stream Sloss and Girl Speaks on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You don't want to miss this. Agent Sonny Jones. If you need a home called Sonny Jones. She can help you buy or sell your home, a luxury or income property. Agent Sonny is the one that you want to see. Hi, I'm
1: Sunny Jones, your community real estate partner. Real estate ownership is key to building generational wealth and it matters who you work with. Whether you're buying or selling, I am here to help you win. Let's chat. You can find me at agentsonnyjones.com, Facebook and Instagram, or by text 323-793-7651. If you need a home, call Sunny Jones. 323-793-7651. 323-793-7651. So
0: when you need a home, call Jones. When you need a home, call Sonny.
1: Sonny Jones. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jamal Shakir, who is a writer, director, producer, and South Central Native. His roots to the land run deep. His father and family are reptiles of the Roland 90s gang here in L.A. Although Shakir has taken a different path, a college graduate who played football, he is using his camera to bring to life not only the story of his family, but those forced to adapt and survive within the belly of the beast. In 2019, he wrote, directed, and produced Land of No Pity, a eight-part series based on novels written by his stepmother. Land of No Pity aims not to glorify the streets of South Central, but to help viewers understand how the streets became the war zone that we continue to see today. Jamal, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um... Well, thank you so much for coming through today. Um it's been a minute since I have like physically seen you in person. Um but how has 2022 been for you so far?
2: So far so good. Um I've had a lot of different opportunities to showcase my abilities and stuff. Um I was just accepted into the Warner Brothers Access to Access program. So, starting,
1: baby yeah,
2: so Congratulations. Starting to do local 600 work, trying to get my hours and stuff to become a DP and get into the union. So, mm. that's been pretty dope. Um, I actually am starting a podcast too called Land of No Pity. Um, nice. I met with some guys named uh, Chip Warren and Ray over at her Studios, LA. So Mm -hmm. from there, we kind of like bounced the thing around. I wanted to go a different route. I wanted to do a documentary of it at first. Mm -hmm. And it's basically over prosecutorial misconduct over uh, federal circuit systems and the justice system. So Mm -hmm. um, they decided that it would be better to do it as a intellectual property piece so to keep building the repertoire of "Land No Pity" and kind of base it loosely off of that as well so mm-hmm. yeah we got that going in 2022
1: too so okay congratulations that's really dope um just to make sure that I'm clear though when you say the focus of the podcast that you're going to do is it going to be like uh, um interviews or is it like a scripted where you kind of like it's more
2: uh scripted like I said mm-hmm. the original thing was to do a a limited docu series right. uh, based on prosecutorial misconduct and we'll call it exonerated okay. so we will focus on like the malpractices practices of the US attorney's office uh the actual prosecutors and stuff and how they go more so for the sake of convictions as opposed to what really happened based off of evidence and stuff like that so right. we wanted to highlight that we had already started reaching out to a gang of different inmates getting their like individual stories and stuff mm-hmm. and when i had to talk with uh chip we wind up he's like hey have you ever thought about a podcast I'm like eh I've never even really thought about a podcast Mm -hmm. so he's like no it's like a really great great platform stuff like that he's also like the producer of like Lock Up Raw and Mm -hmm. all types of other like uh, Justice System TV shows so Mm -hmm. once he pitched it and he brought me up to the studio I met his partner we ate lunch and stuff and then kind of like mapped it out from there so I was like "All right, let's try to do it so
1: Yeah. yeah That's what's up. All right. Well, definitely going to be on the lookout for that. Do you have any um, time frame in terms of when you guys are going to start or just kind of still working everything out? Like I said,
2: I kind of just, they're giving me my introduction into the podcast world. Though they've been doing wrongful conviction podcasts for a while, Mm -hmm. like I'm kind of new to it. Mm -hmm. So I have the information, they have the know-how. So right right now we're just in the stages of trying to like combine it, mesh it all together. So hopefully not too long. But, yeah, definitely working on getting the deck and stuff together for it right now. Nice.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's tight. Okay, for sure. So, you know, we've been in this coronavirus pandemic since 2020, you know. Um, I know as somebody that's kind of in the, not kind of, somebody that's in the film space and, you know, directing music videos as well as shooting your own projects, the coronavirus pandemic definitely shifted the space that you were in you know um in what ways were you were you affected from the coronavirus pandemic and a lot of spaces and businesses being closed down
2: immediately it like halted everything you know because no one actually knew what was going on what to expect from and the media speculation had everybody just like at a halt so Um, initially everything shut down, but once it kind of like started ramping the other way, everything like the floodgates open because it was just like the industry was on pause for months and months and months. So once it actually opened all the productions and stuff was behind slate. So it left more room for job opportunities and stuff like that. So as far as the music videos. They still kind of went. A lot of people was hitting EDD, so everybody was like, (laughs) the rappers was definitely like, all right, yeah, we still can push forward. But (laughs) I've personally kind of like shied away from the music videos. Mm -hmm. I'm not as into that world anymore as opposed to like creating my own projects and stuff like that. Uh, I've been doing like a lot of commercial work though, Mm -hmm. Um, getting behind the camera and doing like some DP apprenticeships and stuff like that. So um, trying to get more into the, corporate side of it actual union and bigger budget and stuff so yeah but the coronavirus definitely affected it we take tests like three and four times a week sometimes mm-hmm. i took a three tests in one day so it's <laughs> like yeah that part's definitely changed a lot you mm-hmm. see like the politics of that set of stuff as well it's like mm-hmm. the mass versus no mass type thing so mm-hmm. it's definitely changed the the whole dynamic of everything and how it works for sure though
1: but you definitely just adjusting and kind of just acclimating to make sure that you're still able to do what you need to do.
2: Yeah, definitely got to definitely. keep pivoting.
1: Definitely. Hey, that's funny. You mentioned the um, EDD and the rappers because something that just popped in my brain was those guys that went to jail and they made that song um, <laughs> about how they hit for the for the EDD. Mm-hmm. It was like, I got rich off of EDD. They oh, made a yeah. whole music video. I'm like, why would you do that? Tripping. Why would you do that? <laughs> Even if you did hit for that much, nobody needs to know, you know? But um yeah, that's interesting. So when you pick up the camera, um do you feel more in control of your your story and identity as a black man in America?
2: Of course. I feel like we should be the ones telling these stories, you right. know what I'm saying? So of course like it's proven That black media is going to sell. We got the number one consumer audience to media and stuff as well. So it's like we have the stories to tell. We have the people to sell it to. However, the way the industry works is kind of just like they won't allow you to. You look at Snowfall, for example, who's doing crazy numbers. Mm -hmm. John Singleton shopped that project for years and was turned down by plenty of people before he signed on somebody else that got it through the door. You know what I'm saying? As opposed to it just being like, this is John Singleton's project. It's John Singleton and someone else's project. Considering the fact that John Singleton had multiple hit movies way before Snowfall even came into play. So it's just like, that's a great example of it. And that's why I'm kind of just like, I want to focus more on telling our stories, telling our stories from an authentic spot instead of just like solely the music videos, just Mm -hmm. because of the fact that like, we do lack representation in that part, especially like authentic representation.
1: Definitely. So what are some of the like biggest um, messages <coughs> do you think that you are trying to relay through your um, art?
2: I think the biggest message is hope, for one. Um, especially for the people that come from the circumstances that we come from, it's kind of just like the voices that we have are often forgotten so to be able to use a craft in order to speak those truths and speak those stories like i said in an authentic way is something that i'm just like i want to be able to do to be able to give the people after me hope to be able to give the people beside me on a even playing field and the ones that may be older than me mm-hmm. hope and a chance to see that like it's other opportunities it is a way right even though that is hard you know what i'm saying so a lot of my films and stuff, my main characters would be actors, but everybody else is homies. You mm. know what I'm saying? So it's kind of just like bringing them afloat and, you know, bringing them along the way to be able to see that we can create change, we can create opportunity. And these are people that's never acted before. Mm. Majority of the people that's in Land of No Pity never even been in front of camera before. You know mm. what I'm saying? So to be able to see that is dope because you're seeing people that's like, don't even know what this is. Never even seen a camera set up like this before. Mm-hmm. Or why the lights do this and do that? Mm-hmm. And like when we had the the premiere at the Chinese theater, had never even been out of South Central before, never been to the Chinese theater. Mm-hmm. So just to be able to see that, to give them hope, to be able to see like it's a different way mm-hmm. is probably my main thing, one of my main messages, to try to incorporate everybody mm-hmm. in any type of way I can.
1: Okay, definitely. So, do you remember the first time you picked up a camera?
2: I do. (laughs) I do.
1: Yeah. What age was that?
2: Mm, Surprisingly, like, 19, 20. Because it's like being young. And then I also, like, went to... Georgia and spent a lot of my years in Georgia too so Mm -hmm. the film and TV industry and even in South Central is kind of like coming from these places like you see stuff on TV but you never think about what goes into making it so I never really had the idea of ever doing anything with a camera Mm -hmm. so I just wind up I went to college for football and I took a fine art selective and it just so happened to be photography so a guy I was working with Outside, he was already doing like graphic designs and stuff. So my final project, I had to choose like one subject matter. And I was like, let me choose rappers. Since he was already working with the TIs and stuff, I wound up kind of like going with him to a music video. It was a pretty big one. So... I had like a super small camera. Like, oh, you shoot music videos? I got pay you, blah blah blah, just because I was there on the scene. So I'm like, oh camera. yeah, I know how to shoot music videos. Never shot a music video <laughs> ever in my life. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right, we go book you, blah blah. blah. Wound up going home, YouTube and stuff. Needless to say, my first couple was horrible, <laughs> but uh, it led to me getting like an internship through them because they were kind of like the lower tier artists at Grand Hustle. Mm. And yeah. That's been it. So in college, it's like my first time actually ever like dibbling and dabbling with the cameras.
1: hmm. So being in, in the right spaces helps to kind of um, just being in the right spaces in general. Of course. You know, lands the opportunities that you might not know or meeting people that could get you another opportunity. So I think that's really interesting and that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so film, are you a huge like film um, person? I'm not. No.
2: Film, television, Uh like, I rarely ever, you know what I'm saying, watch it, which is surprising. Mm -hmm. It's like, for me, when I create or when I pick up the camera, when I think about the shots and stuff that I want to do, it's like, I'm not really an emotional person. So my whole thing is like if I can create that emotion with this camera and make me feel emotional, I know the average person is going to be emotional. Mm-hmm. So my whole thing is to tell the story through a lens that I would see as emotional or able to tell this story and stuff like that. So that's kind of like my way of creating film and stuff, not necessarily like watching and studying. So I guess it's more of like just a, a Nate thing mm-hmm. that I'm able to do. And I think like, of course, I'm accepting of it and blessed mm-hmm. that I had that gift.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay, cool. So you mentioned you went... Okay, hold on one second. Do we got to get you some more water, my guy? No, I'm cool. Okay, cool. Yeah. I just want to make sure. Let me know if you... I can go grab some more. It's a little right. thing. Oh, cool. What's up with the camera? No, I'm just... Oh. <laughs> oh, no, I was just... Because I didn't... If you needed my attention, I wanted to make nah, sure... No, no,
0: no.
1: Okay, cool, cool. All right, cool. So... You mentioned um, living in Atlanta for some time. In
2: Georgia? Warner Robins, yeah. Warner Robins,
1: Georgia. Okay. You mentioned living in Georgia. Uh, What part of Georgia was it?
2: Warner Robins, Georgia. So it's like, if you look at the map of Georgia, it's like right in the middle of it.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, How long did you spend out there? Like, what age did you go to Georgia?
2: I spent a lot of time out there. Um, I went out there, I I was like eight. And then bounce back and forth, wind up going to Oakland for a minute, then back to Georgia, then back out here. So, yeah, it was kind of like one of those rides, but majority of the time was in between Georgia and here. So, yeah, now I went to college and stuff out there, too. So Mm
1: -hmm. What are, like, some of the biggest differences um, in Georgia and L.A., like, between, between the
2: two? I would say the speed. It's definitely like the lifestyle speed is a lot faster out here. Everything is a lot more advanced and progressive versus out there. Um, The people definitely, too. You know, it's like with the racial issues and stuff like that out here, it's more like you wouldn't necessarily know unless it's kind of like an extreme case. But out in Georgia, it's kind of like, all right, like. If we don't like you, you know we ain't going to like it. you. you going to know when you're in the wrong places because they going to look at you. they going to let you know. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Out here is kind of a little bit more laid back. So I think those are kind of like the biggest differences.
1: Okay, okay. Because you were mentioning like it is still the South. Yeah, it know? is. <laughs> Definitely.
2: Like I think a lot of people forget that. Like you mm-hmm. look at Atlanta and think like, okay, Georgia is an accepting state of blacks. Like not nah, Atlanta has a large percentage of Blacks. Once you go outside mm. of Atlanta and you in the sticks, you kind of ride back on your own. It's the same thing as being in Alabama or Mississippi or anything else. Like I think people often tend to forget that.
1: Ooh. Well, I'm going to make sure I keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, so who did you live in Georgia with?
2: My aunt. My aunt went first. She went out to Georgia first. Um, then a couple years later, I wound up going out there with her and then my grandma moved to Georgia probably like once I hit high school. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. So let's talk about like the reasons why you were kind of like, um, being raised by, you know, like your grandmother and your aunt and, you know, your South Central baby, but you know, you move into Georgia with the family and things like that, you know, um, Kind of, like, describe your home life growing up, like, prior to, like, eight years old. You know, mm-hmm. like, what what was the dynamics like for you in, in the house?
2: Uh, dynamics, it was kind of just, like, at an early age, because I kind of bounced between my aunt and my grandma even then, because my uh, parents were part of the longest ongoing federal death penalty case uh, in U.S. history, so... Um, Both of them wind up getting incarcerated, becoming incarcerated when I was two months old. So initially I went to my grandma um, and then kind of, like I said, bounced between her and my aunt. So with everybody being from South Central, my mom, my auntie, my uncles, my dad, everybody growing up, it was like the essence of what the streets were was already like embedded in what the house was you know like every time you got like, oh, you got to watch for this make sure it's this so it's kind of like not really a paranoid thing but it prepared you for a lot more things like versus somebody who didn't come from these situations so I don't think really I lacked anything in terms of that side of it um but, yeah so, the house, yeah, so the household situation was kind of just, like, me and my unstarter, my first cousin. We kind of stayed together through everything until my aunt wound up moving. And I wound up staying with my grandma for full time at that point. And then, like I said, a couple years later, I wound up going out there with her.
1: Mm-hmm. So at any point, you know, were you a- ever, like, um, asking your grandmother and your aunt, like, hey, where are my parents You know, like as, as you got older,
2: I mean, I, those things weren't hidden from me. I mean, Mm -hmm. like I knew that at an early age, just from as long as I can remember, I was going to go see both of them. Um, so it, like I said, that part, it was the street side of it. That essence was already more of a mature thing because it was like, it's normal. Not necessarily in a sense that like everybody else would think it's normal, But considering the circumstances that people come from, it's like, this is normal for us. Like, oh, they in jail. This is what they doing. We all know when they coming home. Mm -hmm. It's your decision. You want to talk to them. You don't want to talk to them. You want to go see them. You don't want to go see them. Mm -hmm. So for that part, it was kind of just like it was already set in stone. It was already etched. Like, this was what the reality was. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, definitely. So, you know, as you as you got older and I know you said that, you know, it. It was never nothing that seemed different because you were kind of brought up understanding certain things, being exposed to certain things. But maybe like during your teenage or adolescence years, was there ever a period where you felt um, any any type of way um, about your parents not being there um, considering, you know, the circumstances and things like that?
2: I mean, I think like anybody would feel that way. Right. But. When it comes from a situation to where it's like, all right, they leave at two months old. So you don't really ever experience life with them. It's kind of like, to me, it's normal. You know what I'm saying? Like I said to everybody else looking in, it might be like, oh, this is horrific. How do you get through it? But I don't know anything different. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So I was kind of forced to live with that. Um, Of course, once I got more of a understanding age hit like my adolescent years, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the things that I was doing or getting into might have been subconsciously driven through those situations hmm. but never like pointing the finger of like this is why i am this way or this is why i did this like mm-hmm. i never really looked at it as like a fault you know what i'm saying it's right. just like something you got to adapt to and just keep going through
1: that part <laughs> you know i asked you this because you know um growing up in the hood coming from single parent households it's like a normal thing for us, you know, um, not having a parent that was there and things like that, you know, um, for me personally, like I had never like met my moms and things like that, you know, and like, um, I did used to feel periods of like feeling like abandoned and shit like that, you know, but, and then it used to make me feel like really sad. You feel me? But, um, basically I just came to the conclusion, like it's people, a lot of our friends don't have one, one parent. So Uh I just kind of chucked it up like that. You know what I'm saying? Like we all basically dealing with that, you know, but, um, I know that for some of our youth in the community, they deal with that in different ways, you know, for you, you know, how you were saying there's no context for you to really relate it to, you know, because they were gone for you at two months. Um, and then, you know, you had other family there, Uh, that was watching over you and things like that but um do you feel that like one parent households in the inner city is like maybe why we continue to see a lot of issues
2: like putting it that way I do believe that a lot of the things that I did once I hit those teenage years and stuff Mm -hmm. were once again because of the situation but never on like a I'm pointing the finger type thing, more so of like, like you said, a sense of abandonment, but not from them. Just more so I grow up and I'm like, I'm in a household where it's my aunt, her kids and her husband kids, or Mm. my granny got a daycare and she got other kids to where it's like, you start equating it to like, all right, I'm not their responsibility. You know what I'm saying? Like, so for me, it was one of those things where it helped me mature a lot faster to where it did put me in situations that I shouldn't have been in or doing things that I shouldn't have been doing. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? But it was off of the sense of like, I got a fan for myself. Like, you know, they took me in, they allowed me to, they got a roof over my head, but I can't expect anything more. I can't expect anything beyond because if they do, then this one going to be looking like, oh, this is my mama. You know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. I never really wanted to be that burden. I think that side of it kind of drove me to doing different things. Mm -hmm. And so I do believe that in that aspect, it's a lot of the reasons why we keep repeating the same cycle in terms of not having parents around whether it's the mom or the dad mm-hmm. because it is a nurturing thing that you missing which is a key point of life especially like through your upbringings and stuff like that of course you have other people that can come play the role and step into these different things right. but it's never the same right you know what i'm saying like it's a different bond, it's a different, even if it's like, oh, I've been with this person since I was two months old. Once you get to that point, so you realize and you see other people like, oh yeah, that's my mom and you see they bond or that's my dad, you see they bond and you don't have that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, like I said, subconsciously, you might be like, all right, like, yeah, whatever, it's life, I ain't never had that anyway. Right. But at the same time, it does take a toll in terms of like the decisions and the outcomes that wind up happening to you.
1: Definitely. Um, What would be something that you would want like um, someone, a youth in the inner city that's dealing with like having only one parent? Like what some things you would, of encouragement would you say to them or want them to like keep in mind as they, you know, go throughout life?
2: I think that everyone should keep in mind that like it's going to be hard times and it's going to be great times. Hmm. So I think like for me, And what I can say is just like being even keel, not getting too high, not getting too low and continue to just keep pushing through the storm. Cause it's like, if you look at it, if you think about it, it's always going to be somebody that's in your position or maybe a little worse. You know what I'm saying? I always tend to kind of like rely on that. Like when I think things is getting hard, I'm like, at least I got something over my head. You know what I'm saying? At least I can jump in the car and go drive and I'm not walking 20, 30 miles, you know what I'm saying? And right. for those that's doing that, it's like you look over across the season. It's like, at least I got water, you know what I'm saying? So right. I think at that point, it's just like accepting, you know what I'm saying? Accepting what it is, accepting what your feet are, and then coming up with a plan of how you go overcome that and just staying the pace, staying steadfast with it.
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: Yeah.
1: All right, for sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about Landon No Pity. Um, and at what point did you decide that you wanted to adapt a scripted series from your stepmother's novels?
2: College. Um, I had read the books, like, before then, but my senior year in college, it was like, like I said, I never saw myself being in, like, the industry, entertainment industry, even though I was already shooting music videos and stuff. So I'm like, all right, I'm gonna just focus on football, do football. I got kicked off the football team my senior year in college. So I played like three games. And then after that, I was just kind of like, you know what, I had nothing but free time. Cause I was originally supposed to graduate in three years. I had, I had all my credits or whatever. So, but because I wanted to play football and continue a football career overseas or whatever, I was like, I'm gonna stretch it out so I can play football another year my senior year and just go half a semester. So I got kicked off after like three games. And then I was like, I just got a whole bunch of time. So I'm like, all right, let me just roll the dice. You know what I'm saying? I really don't have nothing to lose because after college, it's like, as a majority of black kids, like once you hit 18, ain't no coming back to the house. And for right. me, it was like tenfold of that because this ain't my house to come back to anyway. You know what I'm saying? I'm living with my auntie, so I definitely can't go back to her house. Mm-hmm. So it's like, all right, let me try to figure something out.
0: Mm-hmm. So I kind
2: of just like rolled the dice. Um, I was working with one of my professors who was like doing his master's program in it um, and like screenwriting and stuff. So I kind of just like pivoted and put my all into that and then came out here and shot it. Like, let's, let's try it and see where it goes. So once I kind of, once I shot it, got everything done, and started like, really catching fire a lot of different people wind up coming on board lending their hands and trying to shop and stuff like that
1: okay definitely um so what are like some of the hard pieces of trying to put all of that together you know we see kind of like the end product but um like how long did it take you to write and shoot that and then what were like some of the like the difficult parts along the way
2: the shooting part was probably the easiest part the pre-production mm-hmm. that took probably like nine months mm-hmm. which is a lot considering we shot with like 15 16 pages worth of script mm-hmm. so um that was probably like the biggest challenge especially considering like i don't have no budget i'm doing it by myself you know what i'm saying so wardrobe casting crafty catering everything came <laughs> down to the planet to me Mm-hmm. So it was like I had people come in and help out and lend their hands once everything was already arranged. And mm-hmm. these are the days that we shooting. Mm-hmm. But previous to that, it was like everything had to be done by me because I didn't have a budget to pay everybody. Right. So once we got on set, that kind of like ran smoothly. We only shot three days, three 16-hour days. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that part of it was probably the best. Then we got into editing. That took a while, too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
1: All right. And so how did it make you feel to see, you know, the finished product of what you have put into motion with Land of No Pity?
2: For me, it's like, I hate looking at it. Like, (laughs) because I'm a perfectionist. So it's like, I see this, this, this. Mm -hmm. And then I'm just like, I don't want to watch it no more because I might (laughs) see this too. Mm -hmm. But so for me, like the most enjoying part of it was the reactions of everybody else. Like I said, like taking the homies out to the Chinese theater and letting them see themselves on the big screen and like how he literally took the Chinese theater over <laughs> it. And you know what I'm saying? Like seeing their reactions to like that probably brought the most joy. That and then like family reactions and stuff like that, being able to make everybody proud and because a lot of people, like I said, didn't even know what the TV and film was. It's just like, all right, we on camera. You know what I'm saying? That was kind of it. And my auntie and grandma, like, all right, he doing something with the camera. I don't know what he <laughs> doing. You know what I'm saying? Even with the music videos. It's mm-hmm. like, I can tell them I'm doing this, this, this. They don't know what it is. Right. Parents included. Right. You know, so it's like, that part of it was kind of just like, all right, it is what it is. But once the finished product came out and I saw the reactions of everybody else, that was the kind of like... Heartwarming part of
1: it. All right, nice. Well, I definitely salute you. Um, you know, with writing, producing, and just putting everything together. You know, I know that that wasn't no small task.
2: Appreciate
1: it. And um, yeah, definitely. So, so you know, in addition to your um, TV and film pursuits, you also are a business owner. You own um, Going Postal Candy, which is a candy shop slash you you got the the P.O. boxes cracking, you know, like talk to us a little bit about your space at Going Postal Candy.
2: Yeah, so there is kinda like it's a great space because I'm able to have like a social life there too. In terms of like if I want to meet somebody or you can come to the office and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the main services we have is like a candy and mailbox store. So anything you could do at the post office, you could do at our shop. So we got FedEx, DHL, UPS, USPS, Western Union, and then over 500 post office boxes. And then we have also over 100 selections of candy. And then we got different merchandise and stuff in there, too, as well. So,
0: mm.
1: Okay, definitely. Well, I need to talk to you about maybe getting some of my shirts up in there. Oh, my God. <laughs> but we'll talk. For sure. Um, All right. Yeah, so... How did you kind of settle upon this uh, business model?
2: It was kind of like just reactionary type thing. Um, I wanted to do a postal store before, and like since I played football and stuff at the college, we had like a small college town, Mm -hmm. so a lot of the people knew me from football. So I was like, you know what? Like if I start a business down here, I'll be able to like kill them because a lot of people just want to come just because it's solely mine. Mm -hmm. So. once I came out here and was shooting, of no pity, I was like, "All right, a couple of my college teammates. I'm like, look, just what we gonna do? We get all the boxes, y'all go down, find the building or whatever, get the business stuff, and then we can just start going from there." So I bought the boxes. They never wind up going to go see the building. <laughs> So the boxes just sitting in their house. Then they call like, hey, my roommate tripping. He want to get the boxes out of here, the P.O. boxes out of here. I'm like, they just as much your P.O. boxes as they are mine if we're going into business together. But needless to say, I wind up having to go out there, ship all the stuff out here. So I was just kind of like, all right, let's do it. But the space we got was a little bit bigger than I expected. And it just made it a lot more easier because now I can run the business while being hands-on versus like having to call in all the time down there. Mm-hmm. But the business wind up being, well, the building wind up being a little bit bigger than expected. So once we added all the different contracts, I'm like, uh oh, let's figure out what else we could do. So because of COVID, a lot of people were selling like businesses as is. So the candy side of it, it was like, We got it for a little bit of nothing. So I was like, all right, let's try to put that in and kind of just monetize off of the extra building space because the postal stuff was the main culprit anyway. So
1: Mm -hmm. that's what I'm talking about. Hustling, period. Legitimate Mm -hmm. businesses. Um, What would you say drives you the most as an individual?
2: Mm -hmm. I think just one more kind of drives me just being hungry um seeing the circumstances that we come from being able to be like all right i can go over here to this side and see where we lacking at, and then i can go to like the eps that signed on the land of no pity go eat dinner with them and see where they're not lacking at you know what (laughs) what i'm saying so like to be able to see both sides and wanting to incorporate this and bring it all together i think that's like my driving force Hmm. in addition to like the future generation when I do decide to have kids and stuff like that too Hmm. I mean that's always a looming motivation but as of right now the ones that are around me Hmm. you know what I'm saying like being able to give them that hope being able to create those opportunities is like the biggest motivation for me
1: definitely um any short-term goals or long-term goals that you want to share or kind of just be on the lookout for you
2: Short term goes, get back to shopping land and no pity fully to get it uh fully funded. Mm-hmm. I got the godfather of Harlem EP, Marquan Smith. He's uh been doing some different type of helping as far as shopping it. Mm-hmm. Uh Milan who's also another Emmy Award winner, he's been coming on board to shop it. Mm-hmm. Um TI is also offering to add some financing behind it, but just to get it fully done, fully shopped and fully close out to be able to tell it the way that I want to tell it, to Mm -hmm. be able to keep it authentic and just gritty. Mm -hmm. That's kind of one of the short-term goals. Um, I also have two other features and stuff that I just finished writing. So I want to get those two shot probably by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Those are short-term goals as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Long-term, I want to do a film academy. Uh, nonprofit film academy, just because I know how hard it is to get into these industries, especially like unionized work. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know somebody, there's no way you're going to be able to get union hours. If mm-hmm. you don't know a producer that's going to allow you to be on, then you're not going to be able to get the union days you need to be able to come into the union. So my mm-hmm. whole thing is kind of like do the publishing company and the film academy all together Um, the publishing company I'm actually like working to turn that into a nonprofit. so we're focusing on the incarcerated right now letting them allow themselves to tell their stories and then self-publishing it ourselves from there if the stories are good enough then we can kind of adapt it into a tv series or a film or whatever in that case Mm -hmm. allow people to be able to get their ep credits and the kids that are coming up through the film academy. Now you're able to work in union positions because I'm a producer on it and I'm allowing you to come and help out in whatever field you feel like you want to go through. Of course, so those are kind of like long-term goals. It's mm-hmm. like an all-inclusive thing, continue to create opportunities and stuff because like the amount of money that's in that industry is enough to change the lives of millions of people that come from the circumstances <laughs> that we come from. So to be able to make that inclusive, that's, of course, a long-term goal. Mm,
1: Definitely, definitely. So, yeah, you mentioned the publishing company. Before we close out, I definitely want to highlight that. Um, So, yeah, how long have you had the publishing company?
2: The publishing company has been existing since 2017. Mm -hmm. So... We're working on manuscripts with other people right now, kind of getting their last little stuff. We do editorial service, manuscripts, books, magazines, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So we're focusing on the incarcerated right now, allowing them to get their stories out. So we're working with a couple different people right now to kind of like put the finishing touches on their books. Mm -hmm. Um, We've also released Land of No Pity, the books, book one and book two, through the publishing company as well.
1: With your projects that you're you know, shopping and um, seeking, like those folks that can help you take it to the next level. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And ideally, what would be like the perfect um, overall like presentation for the public that you would like to have for your projects?
2: In a perfect world, I would say um, everything independently shot first. Or at least privately funded in a way to where I can keep creative control. Um, from there, kind of building to be able to get first look deals and stuff, I have projects that I'm willing to sell, but things like Land of No Pity and stuff like that, I'm not willing to sell. I'm not willing to kind of compromise the vision, so to say. Right. So, um, Being able to do those in the way that I would like to do it as far as being fully funded and shooting it raw and uncut Mm -hmm. would be the perfect situation, which will ultimately lead to a first look deal to where from that point forward, like anything I want to be able to create, I'll be able to do that on the dime of somebody else or (laughs) the dime of a studio or production company or something like that. So that's Mm -hmm. the ultimate goal is to be able to just get so many quality projects out that like people are asking me to be able to create versus me asking someone to help me create.
0: Mm.
1: Okay. Definitely. So anything else you want the people to keep in mind, or you want to tell the folks before we close out?
2: Um, You can come get your copies of Landon Pity book one and book two at going postal candy. Um, the address is five zero six, six and a half West Pico Boulevard, which is on the adjacent corner of Wee Jamming, which is on Pico and Redondo, and right next door to the Petri Nest, which is a hair salon. So you can come there, check us out, or you can order directly from LandinNoPity.com.
1: That part, you heard them. If you're going over there to We Jamming, make sure you check out my guy at Going Postal Candy. Pick up Pity. <clears throat> Sis is not. Sorry. Make sure you pick up Pity. Also, um, people were asking in the comments, you know, where can we find the, where can we watch this, where can we watch this, Land of No Pity. Stay tuned, it's coming to you. It, it just gotta, it gotta be right. You feel me? Um, that was a project that you started in college that you, you know, showed at the Chinese Theater, and uh, you showed all the eight parts there.
2: No, so basically, what I did was I shot twenty minutes of the pilot episode. Everything is an eight-part series, well, eight-episode series, all of them hour long, but I shot 20 minutes of the first episode to be able to shop it. When I take it into these different pitch rooms as far as networks and stuff like that, it's not just a conceptual idea on paper. It's something I can actually show Mm -hmm. that I did this, I directed this, you know, because that's kind of the biggest hurdle that you face. It's like, oh, yeah, the story is dope, but... You can't direct it. You ain't never did it before. You can't show run it. You ain't never did it before. You can't write. You ain't never did it before. Mm -hmm. So my whole thing was to be able to prove that I can do that. And Mm -hmm. then in addition, be able to show the feel and the theme of how I want it to go. Mm -hmm. So by doing that, it gives me a little bit more to add to the package of the IP because now I'm given a visual reference of of what exactly I'm trying to portray instead of just talking about it or writing it down.
1: Period. Okay. So... If somebody was to hear this um, and want to support, what would be the best way to contact you?
2: Uh, By email. Yes, yeah, so you can email me at info at com. S-H-A-K-I-R Publishing.com.
1: All right, sweet. Well, thank you so much again for your time. Um, wishing you all the best in 2022. And Likewise. can't wait to see what's next in store for you. So thanks again. Appreciate it. No
2: doubt. Like
1: this episode?
0: Leave a review and stay up to date on new episodes by subscribing to Sloss and Girl Speaks. And follow Sloss and Girl on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook.